something else to wear now. No, I was looking around for my train book. Oh, right. Well, it's just a... hello and welcome to a, an, another episode of um, the Ashes Lounge. Today is going to be. You know, I'm, I'm joined by Dr. Philip Blood. Um, hello, Philip. Good afternoon, Biggles. I, I see that you are wearing the shirt. I am. And the shirt. This, this shirt is now becoming a thing of legend. And so so much so that I've taken a screenshot of Phil wearing the shirt, and it's going to be fronting this this particular episode. Um, now we're going to do something a bit different because normally with the Ashes Lounge, especially with with Phil, we we talk about military history, but today we're going to talk about something even better. This is a thing. A photograph with a choo choo in me. I'm being shown. Um, Photo photo profile number eighteen, German austerity two ten o. Oh, that's what it's, I was looking for. You see, we're going to be talking about trains. I mean, we we, we might actually should we refer Fred Dib to Fred Dibner now because you know he, you can't talk about steam locomotion without talking about Fred Dibner. Do you want to take a picture? Let's take a picture of that one. There you go. Did it work? <clears throat> it did. I've got I've got you peering around the edge of this 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 magazine furtively. <laughs> I felt like a bit a bit of furtiveness. <laughs> you talked about Fred Dibner, kind of like from my part of the world. So yeah, I mean, <coughs> a, a bit of furtiveness. A bit of furtive, yeah. Um, also, today's we're not going to be doing sort of the full length because both Phil and I we've had a bit of a week of it, uh, and we've decided that actually this is going to be quite a cathartic experience. We're going to talk about a combined love of locomotives, steam locomotives, um, because it's a nice thing to talk about on a grey Friday afternoon. Phil's in Germany. I'm, I'm in the the, the Dumbles here. Uh, we just it's one of those things that are really good to talk about. And I've got some archives. Oh. Oh, what you got? Which, which uh, people might be interested in, because actually, of that steam engine you've just taken a picture of, I've got actually a full fabric breakdown of a Class 52 boiler. Wow. That, that is actually blueprint pornography. It is. I've taken a screenshot of that. Have you? I have. Cool. Um, uh, that that is you're so scientific it's incredible <laughs> you, know, you, you and the equipment astound me every day it never let it be said that that i don't know what i'm doing with 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 equipment and stuff and stuff and <laughs> technology but if you look again i wanted you to see it because i thought this is you, you can actually imagine that each steam engine this one was built in 1940 you can see how detailed each file was to look after a steam engine. Yeah. This is something we don't see, isn't it, in this country? We, yeah. And, and, and that's no one's fault. It's just one of those things. And, and I must admit, you know, regardless of time frames, the French and the Germans seem to be a lot better at keeping notes than we were. But... Oh, we'll go there, then. And, oh, now that's interesting. What I'm looking at, is the the transfer notes to the Soviets because the Soviets took on a lot of the rolling stock. Um, I don't read Cyrillic. Basically, but... the engine the engine is moving into Soviet military hands. Ah, 
and because the engine disappeared, the files got chucked. And my good lady discovered them in her going to a flea market, and I got three German steam engine files. Aren't I lucky? You know what? There they were they were folk who were, were jammier than jammy. You know, and it also shows you how sharp-eyed your 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 better half is. Well, she knows. Well, she doesn't particularly like them very much. She's, you know, she thinks they're dirty, smelly, and go up and down. Whereas to me, I mean, they are quite beautiful. But the whole file, as you can see, it's properly stamped, so you can see when it's gone through the German system and they've checked the boilers. And you can see they're constantly doing boiler checks, and they're not they're not hanging around, are they? The, no. the Reichsbahn, because that's the Reichsbahn no. stuff to look at, and that's that's interesting because I know that, and it, you know, and before people sort of saying, well, we we kept our notes in, in Great Britain um, and the United Kingdom, and yes, we, we we certainly did, but it's interesting to see the comparative notes um, of of a, another nation, especially one that was. Then one of the dates I know since 1943, and at this point Germany really wasn't prepared for total war, so they they were still had that processing of, of maintenance. Whereas at the time, I think <clears throat> I would get to actually look at contemporary British notes for our rolling stock and locomotives. You know, at the same time, I would, I would imagine I'm sure they were, but I imagine they'd be pretty chaotic. Apart from the boy, the boiler checks would would have to be signed off, but it'd be interesting to see how other checks were done. I have no idea. Um, but that said, I mean, look how many things that sort of remained running after after the uh, after the war. I mean, if you look at um, this, is going to bring us rather nicely onto the Black Five. Well, the Black Five, which is well, actually, I went to school on a Black Five. Just shows you how old I am. But. Um, <clears throat> they were the last steam engines in Britain in 1968. They were still running up until the 4th of August. Um, but they were such, by then, such rusty buckets and falling apart and thinking and clanging and steam coming out of old pipes, what have you, that they were, they were just let go. There's, a, the, there's two schools of thought that you, that the steam engines should have been phased out gracefully. And another school of thought that you can't have two systems working side by side. Well, that's OK if you're British and you're looking for excuses for having got rid of like 10,000 trains over a short period of time. And then regretting it for the next 40 years. I, however, having lived in Germany this long, know the German steam engines carried on in Germany, still operating under the two system um style of electric the you know the electric system of cables and what have you <coughs> steam engines that lasted in the west until 1977 and of course in east germany it was still going on till till the um the war came down and in poland you still had steam engines well actually you've still got massive great steam engine facilities in poland mostly they're linked to preservation but they they came to the conclusion that if you if you stop all of this, you're going to regret it. And the same in East Germany, these Germans decided to keep certain maintenance places, so they carried on maintaining steam engines. 
which is why the Germans have got such a fantastic stock of preserved trains, steam engines and, and, and locomotives, and the same in Poland. And we actually have train events where the steam engines, because it's all the same gauge, travel over to Poland and you get a joint Polish-German steam event in a place called Volzin. So, oh, okay. whereas in, <clears throat> in Britain, I still remember the day being told I'll never see a steam engine again on the British Railways in 1968. And there was a steam well produced a magazine. I used to have it uh, around. I think it's up on the heap somewhere. Um, but on the on the cover was a picture of Leander in bright red colours. It was the August edition and it was stamped end of steam. And the big statement was you'll never see steam trains again on British Railways. And within a short period, Alan Pegler got the Flying Scotsman to do, to run from King's Cross to Edinburgh, remaking the, the famous Flying Scotsman service. And they tried <coughs> to push it to try and do it at the speed. And the problem was, because Flying Scotsman had no facilities on the line, they had to build a second tender. So it looked ridiculous on British Railways. I mean, a, a steam engine with a second tender, which had never been the system in the past. But anyway, there you go. You can't have everything. So the steam engine gets into King's Cross and runs this trip. And I still remember that as because it was done on black and white. Um, because black and white television was still the thing then. And they... BBC followed the steam engine literally. Can you imagine on modern TV? But, but then they followed the steam engine from King's Cross as it departed King's Cross Station with all the festivities arriving in Edinburgh. And, and the fat controller in Edinburgh put his top hat on and did the full Reverend Audrey steam engine wow. controller arriving at Waverley Station with the clerk and the whole, the whole business. And just thinking back in that process, all the culture that we lost simply because some git called beaching comes along with a whole load of falsified figures and says, oh, we don't want this, that and the other anymore. Yeah, I know this is going back to my operational research stuff. As yes, an MBA who does military history. But the fact is, a lot of what beaching came up with Operational researchers later took apart and showed that he falsified that whole study. So you've got people like Stafford Beer, who is probably one of the finest cybernetic operational researchers Britain ever produced, and who was, a, who by the way, was a Chinda officer fighting in Burma, who was a massive industrialist in the 50s and 60s turning around saying the whole thing, proving that the whole of what Beeching produced was wrong. In fact, he produced an article saying words to the effect of, when I arrived at my cottage, I came by train. Now some lunatic is taking a train away and I can't get out of my cottage. <laughs> that is just, that, that just put the whole thing on its head and you think, we never learned. It's interesting you mentioned the beaching girls, especially with sort of you know the contemporary issues that we're we're facing here in Britain at the moment with with the transportation of goods, in that 
and, and, and about a decade ago, they started doing it. They, they did it over at rugby. They just these huge. It was one of the meant to be one of the first of these large regional railway hubs. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not current with it, so do forgive me. But the, you know, we, we we replaced the opportunity of transporting a huge amount of goods by rail with lorries. Okay. Put this in another way: <clears throat> Would you fill a bath with a tap, or would you use jugs of water? <laughs> And we went for the we'll take the taps away and give you the jug of water approach, and and that's and we're ruining that one, aren't we? Really? Well, let me ask you a little question. What won the Second World War in terms of trans- transportation in Britain? Roads or railways? And we know that we, we know it instantly. It was the railway, the rail network. And why is that? Because we had this connectivity. I mean, if you look at the connect, and and also. And here's another little here's another little trickster for you. Everybody makes this bizarre, ridiculous comment about the German army using horses. Yeah. Oh, they got so many horses. Oh, they're so useless. Yeah. But they also had the most intricate railway system that carried them straight to the point of the battlefield. You didn't need to have loads of trucks to supply. You could still use horses because you're shifting whole armies and supplies across the whole of the continent. And that... Why would you use trucks? Exactly. And and that's quite interesting. There was... It might have been yourself. Somebody... <clears throat> somebody did, 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 did the math. And for the German military to be fully roadworthy in 1940, they would have needed something equivalent of 300,000 trucks. Yeah. And they had just the railway. And this then goes back to, you know, locomotives being an exceptionally effective way of transport. Because if you look at what, then what happened in, in the latter part of the war, especially with the 6th SS Panzer Army moving from the Western Front to the Vistula Front, then in a very short period of time, and like you rightly said, they didn't do it with trucks and horses. <laughs> well, <clears throat> what makes me laugh about all these people who are going on about the inability of the Germans to move? is how come they're still in the game? Why do they stay in the game <coughs> so bloody long if they're so useless at moving stuff? Because if the horses at horsepower level and at horsepower speed were what was driving the German armed forces, how long would it have taken an army to have moved one side of the, of the front from Warsaw to Normandy if they used horses? It would have taken the same length of time as it took Napoleon to get from Paris to Smolensk. And that's it. I think people have overlooked also the versatility of steam locomotive steam transport. There's another word that comes to mind, but I'm not going to say it. On the radio. <laughs> Begins with B and ends with an X. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'll wait until the BBC starts saying it on a daily basis. And then it will be a free-for-all. But if the mail is saying it, well. But going sort of, you know, you're looking at the locomotives. So, you know, in the UK, we had the likes of... The, the Black Five, the Stanier Class Five. We had the Stanier 8F, um, which was slightly larger. And then, you know, 
we, yeah, but we still also forget that they were during the wartime years they were building war department locomotives they were indeed the authority class in the 210 and it, i think i think gordon's still on the seven valley railway it used to run on the lawnmower military railway it was the royal engineers work engine and uh, was kept in a blue color and that's was, right it was yeah and there was another one 280 which i think was it named vera lynn and got moved to the North Yorkshire Moors Railway? I want to say yes, but I'm not 100% sure. So, because... I think Vera Lynn was a 280 Royal Engineers and uh, steam engine. and But they were models for the British military locomotives. And they were based on the 280 being extended. So you had the, the Stanyard 280 8F locomotive, which came out around about 1935. Same as the Black Five, but slightly different, obviously, with the 280 configuration. And then they started to build the War Department locomotives. Um, I used to have a book somewhere, but God knows where it's gone there. I have so much stuff, you know. Oh, here it is. Look, Heavy Goods, War Department. Like, see, they all come from the same family. And, and isn't that remarkable? I mean, and what's remarkable about about these locomotives? They, they use them all over. They use them. They use them um, extensively in the Mediterranean. You know, this is these these are the locomotives that, that pitched up to help um, in the second second battle of El Alamein with the logistics effort there. They were they were put on landing craft sh uh, landing ship tanks. See steam engines with blokes in pith helmets. Can't beat it. You can't. I mean, you can't beat a pith helmet. No. Oh, a good pith. Every gentleman should have a good pith helmet and a fez. No, and you'll never hear me take the pith out of anybody in a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> See, look, Peyton on the Royal Engineers sticky. See, I'm not a, I'm not a British military historian, as you know, but I do know the difference of what goes and that, on. And that's that's really and interesting. All of this rubbish about how the railways worked. Here's a here's a little game. How did the German army, when it's going down the road in 1914, and again in 1940, how did it supply the troops at the front? Did it expect to go on the Belgian railway? Or did it expect to go on the Fenbarn, which ran through the Eiffel, that nobody includes in their books? You see, I, no, I like where this is going because the Eiffel, the Eiffel region itself, it's one of those regions we don't talk about, isn't it? It's a bit like the main aunt who, who ran off with a flamenco dancer called Ricardo. We, 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 you know, it, it's... This might shock you, but in 1905, a railway was started that went from Aachen to Malmedy. Right, yeah. Via Spa. Oh, Okay. And Spa became the German army headquarters, if you remember, for the Kaiser, and where he actually abdicated. Now, I can only go as far as Spa today, but in the good old days, I would have been able to get a steam train from Aachen and go all the way down to Malmedy. And that same line, I would have been able to have cut off changed trains or continued on another train and gone all the way from um, Liège, from Arkham to Liège and then across to Hasselt. 
So if you've got these lines which are by bisecting all of this territory, why do you worry about the main line between Liège and Aachen, which apparently the Belgians are destroying and making it all difficult to come down because there's all these other alternatives? But they're never mentioned in the books because nobody ever looks at bloody railways. I, I, th I think a lot of that is because... And, and, and I've fallen guilty of this myself. I'll hold my hands up to it. I think it's because we look at the... We're looking at the stuff that's being used. So, you know, for example, Mantufa, when, 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 Mantufa, when he was using the fifth and they were going through the centre of, of, of the line of advance, it was nearly all road-based. And so you're looking at the road network through through the various regions of the border, sort of Belgium, Luxembourg and Germany. You don't actually... You look at the roads, don't you? Because tanks go on roads, so they don't go on trains. It's almost like a default setting, isn't it? That we're all guilty of overlooking things. And that's really wrong. <laughs> well, if you look at the bulge and you do it the way the Germans and the Americans and to a certain extent a few of the Brits lately have been writing about it, you would think it's fantastic how the Germans, A, get there, and B, then staged this huge operation and how they somehow managed to collect all these supplies. Well, if they're running out of petrol, would they have used petrol vehicles to stack up the gear to do the offensive? You see, now, now this, and, and you raise a really good point because a couple of sources that I've, I've used recently in research, one of them makes does mention the, the huge efforts by the right department, you know, moving trains, moving only at night, hiding in tunnels. The other book, or one of the other books, makes absolutely no mention of this whatsoever. It's almost as if two things are happening. One that the, the, the German, you know, the OKW are thinking, you know what, uh, we're just going to we're just going to get all these guys together and we're going to use Allied fuel dumps as, as we come along them, um, or they magically appeared. Well, <laughs> Someone, you know, I we have a mutual friend, Matt Bone, and Matt's into tempests and typhoons and all these other thingies that were flying around, apparently going around destroying railways. My argument with Matt and the and the Royal Air Force guys is they missed. The thing, the thing is, when you look at the profile of a locomotive, it's a lot narrower than a tank. Not really. Well, for, this, this is how I worked it out, that they're not very good. One, the steam trains are moving. Yeah, and they move at speed. They don't. Yeah, they're not likely to do. Sometimes they're at speed, but I think the clever thing with with the railway men is what they do is they hammer on the brakes when the aircraft are coming over, and then push the regulator up. So there's this massive buildup of steam, which is shafted down the cylinders and the boiler. And oh, it, yeah. it looks like the steam engine has exploded. So Biggles, not you, Biggles, another Biggles. <laughs> I don't know. No, we won't call him Biggles this time. We'll call him Klosterman or one of those other great heroes. And he flies over and he says, oh, I blowed up the train. Then he goes back and reports the train and the Frenchman's back in, in France or the German engineman back in Germany's game. Yeah, we sussed him. We knew it. He missed it completely. The guy was a complete nutter dickhead. He went over and by, and there we go. Bye-bye. Yeah. And, and actually, as you're talking, there, there are a few instances. I think the Americans did well in, in Italy because the aircraft they were flying was slightly slower 
uh, the terrain was slightly different, so it didn't lend itself. You know, the locomotives weren't as powerful. So when you get these these wonderful, there's a wonderful shot, isn't there? Of a, I think it's a um, a P40, absolutely annihilating a train, uh, and it's been used countless times as it is coming down. It's coming from the rear and, it, and it's strafing along. I mean, the, you know, the, gives his pilot his due. I think it might be one of the red tails. He's got his line absolutely spot on, and you see, you, you do see the uh, the boiler explode, the boiler go. Yeah, but he's probably going down the length of the train, isn't he? Well, he is exactly like he's, he's he's coming from the rear, not coming from the front, and so he's he's in he's almost in speed. He's almost sort of leading with the, the using the locomotive as the lead. So he's doing it quite intelligently, but and that's being re recycled so many times, especially on History Channel and stuff like that. And then a lot of these the images I've seen, especially P forty seven pilots, they seem to come at a, at a three quarter angle, don't they? At the head. Like yeah, I say, that's when, that's when your man then suddenly shuts everything off. Yeah, but the great thing is they're using bullets, whereas Klosterman in their typhoons and tempests are firing rockets all over the place. I mean, for me, if, you know, if I was a French person or a German person living around at that time, and there's a typhoon flying over and they're attacking, they're attacking, they're attacking the railway line five miles away, I'm going to run straight to my air raid shelter because. <laughs> Yeah, their chances of hitting the train is very low, but their chances of hitting me is incredibly high. I'm going to go in my hole. <laughs> I'm sorry, but all, all this, you know, brilliant Royal Air Force destroyed the railways. Well, show me, because I haven't seen it. And and actually, somebody now it's interesting, sort of. You know the, the the Germans were very good at re uh, and, and so with, you know or every kind every nation which used utilised the railway networks and any disruption was never more than a week because they they were able to rebuild it very very rapidly and this had been in part from the British experiences of the Great War you know when the Zeppelins came over and they bombed uh, the the occasional line yes it made a mess but we were using this sort of the engineering expertise that we had at the time uh, yeah okay we've lost some lines it, it looks it looks messy but. By and large, locomotives were running within 48 hours, uh, and I think it was the longest period of time that a German. It, I read somewhere that the longest it took the Germans to replace damaged point work was 72 hours. Uh, point work is quite complex stuff. Um, it was Hamburg, I think, they, when they they thought they got the shunting yards, and then they went back a week later. Everything's back to normal. <laughs> The technician not Hilfer and the railway engineers could turn around serious damage within 24 hours. And what 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 everybody doesn't realise, and I still don't get this because the British themselves do exactly the same thing. If the bridge has been blown, you put wooden stilts into the structure and you create a temporary line while you're already creating a convert, a, you know, an alternative route around the system. So you've got two things happening. You've got the alternative route, which, you know, the Royal Air Force continually miss. And then you've got the original route, which has got a hole in it, being filled in with wood to keep it going on a temporary basis, to give them time to get the next process in. And then, and then the system's working again. And I'm thinking, well, how does it go through Royal Air Force or American bombers and fighters thinking that you only hit these places once? Because I, I, they did that in Arkham 
they hit Arkan on the 11th of April 1944 because they were going to invade in May. Then the May invasion was delayed, so they went for the 6th of June. So they hit Arkan, the marshalling yards, because we're central here. This is the line that goes from Arkan to Normandy, which was the main military line and supply route, because you're going into Belgium, Brussels, all that. So you've got the marshalling yards in Arkan, so you have to take out the marshalling yards in Arkan, and then you take out the line at various prominent points. And one prominent point is the viaduct, which is just as the train leaves on the way towards Liège, there's a massive viaduct area there. Well, you'd think, OK, if you're going to close the line, you're going to hit that viaduct, you're going to hit the Fen barn, which is the one that I was telling you about running down the Eiffel, and you hit Hasselt, and you keep hitting them for the next six days until you've landed in Normandy. Well, no. And now this this then brings us to another interesting point, doesn't it? That when we when when the planners are sitting down, when when so J J two or whatever they were at the time, G two um, air ops, um, when they're planning these operations, this is a really daft question. Did nobody actually think to ring up? Joe Bloggs down at GWR and say, listen, we've got an idea. This is what we want to do. What would really upset your working day? What piece of, what do we get rid of to really upskip you? As well as looking at perhaps what the Germans had done previously over 1940, 1941 with our railway network. It strikes me very odd that they didn't think to ask the experts. <laughs> yeah, but what what's even more surprising is during the First World War, the British Army had to cope with sabotage attacks and bombing raids on its own military railroads in France, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and had learned to build railroads or reconstruct lines which have been damaged rapidly. So actually, the British, which who had, funny enough, built railroads all over the world, including, you know, massive railway construction in, in India, goes into the First World War as a forward-thinking railroad builder. The nearest you're going to get to British capability in railroad building is the Americans, who during the American Civil War build railroads all over the place. Also, very good at destroying them. And, that, and the Americans know how to destroy railroads because they've got a dude called Sherman, and he actually destroys lines in such a way that they can never, ever be used again. You have to really rebuild them and start all over again. Come the Second World War, oh, forget all that. That's all history. We don't need to worry about that. And you get dudes like Zolly Zuckerman coming along saying, no, let's have a transportation plan. Let's bomb all the transport, which in theory would be a good idea. But if you only hit Arkan once, and then go back and then say to yourself, hang on, why are the Germans getting all these reserves? What's going on? Why are these reserves? Hang why aren't we winning up? We, uh, we've just had the fillet's pocket, which well, I'm not too sure it was a pocket, but let's say we had a fillet's pocket. How come the Germans are still in the game? Why have they got more divisions now than they had when they were in the pocket? <laughs> what are we doing wrong? Now, and the, and the, they're going to attack us. Oh my God! They're going to us. How did that happen? What is going? What are we fighting here? 
and, 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 to, and to quote and to quote OC Frenchstead, this sort of slides in nicely. You know, amateurs talk tactics, professional talk, professionals talk logistics, and yeah. and, it, and that sort of, that really rings true, doesn't it? Because we have this. I, I think on one side you've got this. Well, if we destroy it, it can't can't be used again. And on the other side, we actually forget there's, there's some blokes in a tin shack somewhere, you know, puffing away in a pipe. So, oh, by the way, there's pot. Yeah, we'll we'll deal with that. In, you know, like you say, within 24 hours, because these guys at this stage of the war, they're able to replace it ever so rapidly. Um, I, I, I actually make myself very unpopular when I've done talks about railways, especially with Americans, because I always refer to the US bombing survey, and you can watch their faces go. Mm, he's read it. <laughs> you, yeah. can, you can see you're no, no. And at this point, at this point, you could just you could just see it, kind of the little rabbit hole, Northern bomb site hit a barrel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not going to go down that one today because I don't. Well, actually, at some point, I might want to visit America without being held at the so, yeah. <laughs> so I like to point out to them, and it's a it's a standard question. How come all the surveyors were shot, but when they looked at the marshalling yards, which they thought they were bombing, they were full of steam engines? Why is that a shocking observation? I, now, yeah. this, this, I'm going to try and answer this a little bit. I'm going to try my best, actually, because we both know it should be shocking. But if you look at it, it, it with, with a sort of semi contemporary head, they had been told, you know, there's back to the Norden, something I'm going to mention it, and then and they will never mention it again. They'd been told that the Norden was an exceptionally accurate piece of kit. They were told that the stuff they were dropping, lumps of metal with explosives, were extremely effective. What they weren't told, and this is something you, you know, you have said, is the guys they were dropping it on, and the women, were very good at getting everything back up and running. And again, this goes back to history. There's something that GWO were very good at, LMS were very good at, LNER were very good at, and Southern were very good at. They, you know, they, they'd not listened. And I think they they, they genuinely believe that the, and the more you hit something, the less likely it's going to get down. But in the, you know, the case of case of the Germans, they were just like, well, yeah, okay, you, you've blown a few holes. We can actually repair this. We're not, you know, this is our bread and butter. Yeah, so I just go home half an hour later. You know, it, I tend to remember my uncle's joke from the Second World War. Go on. When the Royal Air Force comes over, the Germans run for cover. When the Luftwaffe comes over, the Brits run for cover. When the Americans come over, everybody runs for cover. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I laugh at my joke because I do actually find that one funny. <laughs> well, is this? I think again, this is a, this is this echoed in. Even even at sort of you know tactical level, because there was this lovely American saying that they said that um, if you met accurate uh, rifle fire, you, you'd come up against a British platoon. If you met sustained machine gun fire, you'd come up against a German platoon. If you met random fire that <laughs> was chaotic and so more than dangerous, you'd come against the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> well, we're now making it very clear that we're very Anglo-centric. We have a bit of friendliness towards the Germans because I live here. I think I do actually like Americans. 
<laughs> I, I've worked with them, and they, they, they are lovely folk. They really are. But I just think, you know, I, I think that was a, they, they did what any nation would have done in their, in their shoes. You know, you've hit us. You hit us without telling us. We're really quite miffed now. We're going to wallop you. And that, and that sort of very simplistic way of looking at, at, at warfare trickled down, especially in terms of air power and, and how they used it, because they they. They would literally just take out an entire grid service. And the other thing is, they, it, they, it was, it's the old cliche, isn't it? Bigger is better. So the bigger the bang, you would have thought the bigger the damage. Yeah, I think what you see, what you see in things like, I mean, the same is with the British bombing survey. Um, you've got people who are actually writing to a political agenda. They're not actually properly surveying what they've seen. Okay. I know, I know the British operational research officers when they came to Germany made some horrendous errors about what they were supposed to be looking at and made assumptions. The problem with the American survey is that they got the evidence and the people, I think the people who were looking at the, the, the reports of the locomotives literally didn't understand what they were looking at. There was nobody on that survey who was of the transportation mentality to say, well, actually, this is this and this is that, because they were just not there. And so you you, you see the transportation policy that Sully Zuckerman put forward. OK, it didn't work because it wasn't sustained because he kept changing. The, the, the Royal Air Force kept changing its policy from, first of all, transportation. Then he went to oil. Then he went to something else. With the Americans looking at their survey, it's not clear what they're trying to do, All that, except for, well, we didn't really come up with the idea to bomb Dresden. We didn't do this and we didn't do that. And actually, all our bombing was accurate. And, and a lot of that idea that the Americans were more accurate than anybody else stayed in the American memory, which is why you get that, you know, that odd film, Memphis Bell, this recent one. Um, what is it? There's cloud cover, so we have to go around the target a second time, and we have to make sure we don't hit the school on the corner, and blah blah. You know, really, really, you know, I, we I, know you, that's not happening. We know they're going to dump the bombs. It's the way of the war. What I, I don't get, what I do not get, is to this day. The, the, the guys that talk about the bombing and the effects of the bombing and, and the process of the bombing are a little bit vague about their targets. And there's all this idea that somehow the German transportation system was broken and then the American Transportation Corps was going to come in and rebuild the railroads and that's what they did in the West and all the rest of it. Was it the aircraft that would destroy the railways or was it just that? constant carpet bombardment of artillery and that driving drum fire that went, you know, mile after mile after mile of Montgomery's artillery smashing up wholesale land and and territory as his troops are going forward and the tanks move forward. That's what's killing the railways. Absolutely. And, and again, people overlook that because that's that was it, you know, every they say every, every every fighter has a signature move, don't they? And with Montgomery Right, you know, right from the moment he got his, you know, he got he got army command, and even 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 as a corps commander, um, with with his exercises in in the south of England, he always practiced this, this great art. You know, he he used artillery truly as the, the mother of battle. Um, 
and, and he used it as this, this shield of metal. And it, he, he did it everywhere he went, didn't he? And That's people tend to everything. Yeah, because we were just we were literally, you know, when, when you've got a 5.5 inch howitzer giving it some yeehaw, it's going to cause way more damage than. In, yeah, in, in concentration. That, that, that was the kind of warfare that he was his signature. And that's why he was so successful. Okay, something went wrong elsewhere. But the fact the fact of the matter is that was a very successful fighting. But what I don't dig, forget about generals now, is how something as important as the railways and steam trains and everything that was going on in the Second World War can really just get wiped away from the story. It's because it's, it's going to sound. Re- there, there are two possible. Th- this, this is Skipper's theory time. Pull up a chair. Two possible theories now. Before we sort of. One is that people don't because it's not in the psyche of warfare. We don't. We, we consider almost trains to be an anachronism at that point of the war. We've been told that the, you know the the Reichsbahn was on its knees. We're told that we have the most mechanized military you know in, in the world. We don't need locomotives. We don't need trains. The other one is it just probably just does not even feature in our in our research methodologies. When we look at everything, you know, you look at D-Day, you don't look at the fact that eight Fs were brought over on on landing ship tanks within you know the first thirty days. We had to bring stuff over. You don't think about the fact that how did a lot of things get down to the south of England from from places like the northeast, northwest. We don't think about how certain divisions and certain corps. Um, of the hair got across northern Europe and back again, because we 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 have this in our mind that the, the, the warfare then is purely mechanical, mechanised, motorised. Somehow, even the, the train doesn't feature in that because we're looking at the wheel on the road, not the reel on the rail. Oh, that was deep. That was actually very deep. Hell, I'll not be doing that again. No. Oh, shot myself. That was so deep, I didn't. <laughs> In fact, for a split second, your face was like, hey? Uh, yeah. And at this point, I like to say that I'm a fully trained agricultural journalist and know nothing about these things. <laughs> Part of my brief sojourn sojourn with the Royal Air Force on the TA. <laughs> but it, uh, it, it does crack me up that people come up, you know, just about railways and the German army and what have you. And it's just, uh, I don't understand how fantasies can come out of nowhere and then become a theme and then become the story and then become the trajectory and then become the debate and then become the main part of the book. And, you know, I had conversations with railway men who'd served in the Normandy campaign during the the 50th anniversary. And that they were in a different place. Are we done? We're, 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 we're close to, we're close to. Um, no, I didn't know what that thumb was. Oh, that, <laughs> that's your two minute warning. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. I thought if I used the heart, it, well, no, I suddenly thought to myself, if I used the heart, You'll think, well, he's having, I mean, he just had me five minute warning. Oh, okay. And because you, you can't, can you see me? And this way, you say, actually, I've been able to see you for the past half hour. I can see you. I've been able to see you all the way through. Oh, I thought you couldn't. Yeah, well, I said, I've done that. I've you, done that. I said to you, you I can see you now because you could see my shirt and I could see you. 
Uh, you know what? That that went over my, my head. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Are we having this discussion now in, or is it? No, this is still recording. I, I, I t- <laughs> we'll take it out. No, no, we're keeping this quite important, actually, because it just shows you how alive we are and how professional we are. I think, to be honest, I think this is quite a, this is this is an interesting thread, isn't it? When we're talking about lo- the railways, and it will will actually bring us to discussing other locomotives, because there, there are a couple I would like to talk about. You know, the, the, their efficacy in the whole sort of G G four J four um, scenario. Um, can you shall we should we just carry this on for a part two? I think sounds like a good idea. Yeah, like. but. I would like because, to do that. I mean, you, you, you cut my thread now. I was going to talk about, you know, something serious, but. Oh, but no, what were you going to talk about? Can't remember. <laughs> oh, I feel awful now. I think it was something to do with why people write silly books and forget the railways. Actually, I, think, I, I, I think that was where I was going. Uh, I think... And maybe it was, you know. I, I think before before we sort of stop recording, I think that's that's where we should we, we should look at the representation of the railway within the context of book writing because I you know as you as you very rightly said and I even I've alluded to and admitted that it's something that perhaps as, as writers, especially t- t- looking at it from um, a Western front, Northwestern, Northern Europe, for, we perspective we don't tend to look at it as as well as we should. So I, I think that. You know, now would be a good time to wrap it up and say that, that that's where we're going to go next week. Yeah, absolutely. Just being shown a book, Britain's Railways at Wars. Um, and, and I think that's, that's quite important to discuss that. So at this point, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, Phil, thanks ever so much for a, a, a thorough... I thoroughly enjoy. I know it's a short session. Um, we're, we're both tired rabbits. We've sort of been doing stuff. So thank you ever so much for your time. It really is appreciated today. Yeah. Do I get my happy birthday for tomorrow? Come on, now, don't rush a man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but by the time this, this probably go out on Monday, which point this this will, this will be a belated happy birthday, but nonetheless, happy birthday. I hope you I hope I hope the other half is treating you to something. Something good tomorrow, an adventure. Uh, it, it could be a carry. Oh, and so, well, from all of us here at the Adjutant's Lounge, we'll raise a glass of port to you. Um, In reply, I'm going to be drinking Magnum Cider. There you go, living the dream. Um, and listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Really. Oh. We, we are going to come back. We're going to carry on this discussion of the railways in, in the Second World War um, because this is quite an interesting topic. And, and it's, as, it's, as they say, it's got legs, it's got ground. Um, so, Phil, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, and listeners, wherever you are in the world, whether it be Taipei, got a few of you guys from there, um, Ireland, we're getting quite a few uh, listeners there, or even America. Thanks for tuning in. Um, and uh, do keep an ear out for part two of uh, Railways and War. All right, Phil, thank you so much indeed. Ciao. Ciao, Bella. We done?